we want to welcome you to Arden First this morning. As Stephen mentioned, if you are a guest, we are super excited that you're here, and we want you to feel like you're right at home, like this is a family, because it is. And um, just want to let you know about this church family, for those of you who are visiting, such a loving place. My family and friends who have visited here said this church is one of the most loving places I've ever been. So we want to thank you for showing the love each and every Sunday and also during the week. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the celebration of new life in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the baptism that we just witnessed, God, that someone could come and experience what it's like to be buried and to be risen again in Christ. And we thank you what baptism symbolizes. And Father, we ask and pray as we look into your word this morning that you would speak to our hearts and you would help us to understand it. We ask and pray, Lord, as we launch this new series that your blessing would be upon it. We love you and we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're launching a brand new series. This is our pre-Christmas series. As you know, it's getting really close to December. So beginning of December, we're starting a series called White Christmas. And for four Sundays in December, we're going to talk about how Christmas gives us the opportunity to experience new life in Christ. As the prophet Isaiah said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as what? So as Christians, even if it never snows, we can always have a white Christmas. Speaking of snow, let us pray for rain. So let's, let me say a prayer for rain right now. Father, I didn't mention rain, but we want to pray for rain over western North Carolina. God, we really need rain so badly. We know in the Lake Lure area, we know in Silva and all around us are wildfires. And God, collectively, as a church, with all the other churches in western North Carolina, and we thank you for believers around the world praying for us here, that you would give us rain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start a new series this Sunday. It's going to be a three-week series called Miracles in Red. Many of you are familiar with the red-letter edition of the Bible or the words of Christ in red letter. Well, we're going to talk about three miracles of Jesus. That's why we're calling it Miracles in Red. And these miracles are something that if we tap into it, they're written for our instruction and we can learn. And we are a church that still believes that God does miracles today. He's not the God who did just miracles then, but he also does miracles today. And I know there are many people in this congregation who are in need of a miracle or need of God to step in and overturn the natural and make it supernatural. And often we've heard that miracles are basically God invading time and space and the natural. I heard one scholar recently said that miracles are actually God restoring the natural. But because before the fall, people didn't need healing, people didn't need to be raised from the dead. So miracles are God restoring the original order before the fall. I was like, I thought that was really profound. Um, a pastor said that. So we're going to talk about the miracle in John 2, if you'll turn there. This is Jesus' opening debut, his launch, if you will, into public ministry. And it's the miracle at a wedding. And as you turn there, I want you guys to think about your wedding. For those of you who are married, for those of you who don't, aren't married and dream about getting married one day, think about that one day. It's funny how little girls, even from the time they're little, even my girls, they think about the wet, white dress, getting married, and it's almost instinctive from a little girl on up. I can remember my wedding uh, with Lori. It was, uh, it was kind of a roller coaster because m- some of you know my story, some of you don't. 
But basically, uh, Lori became a Christian the day, the day after she became a Christian, we met. And she was a day-old Christian when we met. How cool is that? So seeing her, I fell in love with her and decided to pursue her because I was like, this, this is the woman for me. Don't ask me how I knew it one day, but I was like, something special about her. So I pursued her, but she rejected me. She played hard to get for six months. So guys, for six months, I was heartbroken. So finally, on her birthday, I tricked her into a date. Yes, right, your pastor practiced chicanery and tricked, tricked her into a date. And I know that women are usually big on bigger dates, like anniversaries and birthdays. I'm like, well, here's my chance. It's her birthday. So I decided to make her a homemade gift. And I told her it was on a Friday. I said, um, I, I made you a gift for your birthday. Can I bring it to you? She's like, sure. Where, where do you want to meet? And I was like, well, let's meet at the Starbucks on Charlotte Street. So she met. It was, she was a, an accountant for a CPA firm, and it was casual Friday. So she came in jeans, and I showed up in a blue pinstripe suit, all decked out. And she's like, what is going on? And I was like, well, this is part of your birthday present. So it turned into about a six-hour date. I guess it was six hours, at least four hours. It was a long date. And uh, we went out to uh, an art gallery, went out to eat, we went to a dessert place. And then at the very end, you know, it's like, where's the homemade gift? Were you completely lying? Well, I wasn't completely lying. I was being truthful. I just didn't tell her the full story. So the homemade gift was homemade hot chocolate marshmallows. So I poured her homemade hot chocolate marshmallows and basically opened up my heart. And a few days later, she finally opened up. We dated for six months. We got engaged on top of the Empire State Building, which is kind of fun. And then our wedding was at First Baptist in Hendersonville. And I still remember, I, um, you know, typically you feel like you're going to be nervous, but for some reason we both weren't nervous at all. We were just excited. Uh, God had sent us together. And I still remember uh, my, my, my brothers and my father, father-in-law, we were all back, you know, getting on your, your tux, and my tie was crooked. So they were trying to get it straight, and Lori was in the other room getting ready. And all of a sudden, they asked everyone to stand. And, you know, the weird thing about weddings is people look at the bride, and they look immediately a beeline at the groom. And I was like, everyone's staring at me, you know, self-aware. But I remember Lori coming down in that white wedding dress. And I thought to myself, this is who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And this is so exciting. And um, so we had a great wedding, good celebration. The whole church was invited, so that was kind of fun. And um, then we went off to our honeymoon, and we started um, a journey that's we're seven years into it, and we're excited about the next perhaps 50 years or however long the Lord gives us to live. So as we talk about weddings in John 2, I find it quite interesting that Jesus would make his debut at a wedding. Because in this day and time, Jewish weddings weren't the typical ceremony, and then you have the two-hour reception, and the bride and groom are driving off in the car with cans and shaving cream all over it. Um, but it, the festivals would last a lot longer, and we're going to talk about that. So up to this point in John 2, a little background, Jesus worked an ordinary job as a carpenter, which shows you that just the common laborer, the common person, Jesus identifies the marketplace. So if you're in a marketplace job and you're like, this is hard, you know, whether you're a banker or a carpenter or whatever, Jesus lived that life for 30 years. And all of a sudden, he makes his debut at a wedding. And John, a little background of John, he gives us seven signs 
Whereas the other Gospels present a lot of miracles, John gives us seven distinct signs. And a sign is a miracle with a message. So as we read this text, I want you to ask yourself, what message is God trying to give us at a wedding? And what does water being turned to wine have to do with me here in 2016 in Arden, North Carolina? Well, I'm glad you asked those questions because today we're going to address it. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, On the third day, and in my scripture I have third day underlined because John plays on numbers a lot. And we're going to find that out in a little bit why. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, parentheses, uh-oh, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. Now look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Some of you later are like, ladies like, what? We'll talk about that in a little bit. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone. Notice six. According to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some of the water and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Now, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. And look at verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So what I want to draw your attention to in the text is the interesting thing that the, the master of the feast, um, he said what was surprising to him was that they kept the best wine until last. He said typically at a wedding, you get your best wine, and then after people's senses have dulled a little bit, then you give the less expensive wine, the inferior wine. And what the master of ceremony said, he basically said, I'm shocked that you've kept the best until now. So today I want to give you a message called the best is yet to come. Look at the person next to you and say the best is yet to come. And I want to give you five reasons from the text why from this sign we can experience the best is yet to come. Some people have said your best life now, John would tell us your best life later. And I'll break that down for you in a bit. So the first reason why the best is yet to come is Jesus enters your world. I was reading a story about this Persian king long ago, how he really had a heart for the people in his, in his city and in his country. And he would often leave the throne and dress in ordinary street clothes and go visit the people in his villages and in the community. And one day he met with this very poor man, that lived in deplorable conditions. 
And the king was not recognized by anyone because he dressed in shabby clothes like a beggar. And he ate the, 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 the very, very poor man's food. Maybe it was a little stale. He drank his beverages. And he opened up his heart to him and had a fellowship with him. A few weeks later, the king came back to that same man's little shanty. And he revealed himself as, I am your king. I came disguised as a beggar, but I am your king. And the king was thinking that the, the, the poor man was going to ask some favor of him, maybe wealth or riches. But the poor man said, you left your throne in glory and you ate common food with me and you spent time with me and you opened up your heart for me. That alone is the gift that I desire. And I thought that story was illustrative of Jesus leaving his throne in glory and entering into our human existence and here you have Jesus at a wedding. Now, if you were going to make your ministry debut and you knew that your job description was to save the world, would you really make your debut at a wedding? I mean, think about it. I, I, I would probably make it at some big stadium and you know, do some kind of amazing miracle, like some guy, guy's arm is chopped off and all of a sudden I put it back on and the crowd's going crazy. I don't know if I would be hanging out at a wedding and the main issue at hand is there's no more wine. Um, a few backgrounds of Jewish weddings that I thought was intriguing. A typical Jewish wedding could last up to how long? Does anybody know? Up to a week. And if you had a lot of money, it could be even longer. So I want you to think about this. Like Jesus hanging out for a week. What does that tell you about the Son of God? One thing that convicts me personally is Jesus was never in a rush. You ever wonder about that? I don't know about you, but sometimes in ministry and in family and having four little kids, we feel rushed and stressed out and sometimes borderline crazy. But Jesus, he was never in a rush. He was always on the Father's time scale. A Jewish wedding in a small town was a highlight of that town. It was, in fact, perhaps the party of the year. And generally, in most weddings, everybody would be invited to that town, which explains why Jesus... And um, his mother and his disciples were invited because in a small town, everybody knew everybody. It wasn't like the gated communities of today where, you know, you talk to your neighbors. Everybody hung out. You went shopping in the village. You, you know, went, went, went places together. So what was interesting about this, a lot of Jewish weddings is relatives and family would stay in the home of the bride and groom. It was sort of a bachelor party, family reunion, wedding shower, and honeymoon all rolled into one. And the bride would remain, in many Jewish weddings, the bride would remain hidden in a secluded part of the house and would not be seen by anyone except for the groom until the very end of the celebration. I thought that was unique. At the end of seven days, the bride would emerge to be publicly seen with great fanfare and celebration. So what does Jesus hanging out at a wedding for this amount of time tell you? Well, I think there's a lot of applications here. I think there may be a single mom here today that um, you find yourself really stressed out. You've been working two jobs trying to make ends meet. And you find yourself not spending enough time with your children. You find yourself really difficult to go to church because all the pressure is on your shoulders. Well, I think John 2 would give you some good news. That Jesus cares about the little details. There may be a middle-aged man here today that you're working so hard. And it seems like the harder you work, the more stress you experience. And you come home, 
and there's conflict in, in the household, and it just seems like your kids are always wanting more. They want a new phone. They want new clothes. They want more, more, more. It's quiet today in church. <laughs> and you're just like, there's got to be more than what I'm currently experiencing. When we see this miracle, I think there's good news for even the dad here. There may be a senior adult here that you're struggling because you recently got a doctor's report about your health, and it's not what you thought it would be. You thought that retirement would be something enjoyable, and now you thought the best would be last, and now you're like, why? All my family and friends are passing on around me. Am I next? And there's a little bit of stress there. There may be a single or a student here or someone that's been divorced that when we talk about weddings, you get a little uncomfortable because you've had bad experiences or as a single, you're wondering if God really has someone for me out there. I think all these are valid questions. And what I want you to get here as we talk about this miracle and unpackage it that Jesus can turn your water into wine. He can turn your ordinary into extraordinary. He can turn even your setback into a setup if you will trust in him. So I think, going back to the first point, Jesus enters your world. If you're going through a problem right now, the greatest thing you need is for Jesus to enter into your world. The second reason I believe the best is yet to come is Jesus knows what to do when you don't know what to do. Jesus knows what to do when you don't know what to do. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't know what to do? It could have been a struggle in your family. It could have been a struggle with a friendship. Uh, many times, I, especially on Wednesday night, I tell stories, and sometimes you guys don't get to hear the stories if you don't make it, but I, I tell stories of my days as a church planner. And one, one of the favorite stories on Wednesday night was the story about my gold Cadillac. Anybody remember that story? Um, basically, the backstory of that is I was a struggling church planner and really having a hard time. And I had just gotten married. It was a follow-through of marriage. Another thing about interesting about marriage is my wife, before she said, I do, she said, I do to the church plant, which was crazy. People were like, why are you launching a church when you're just getting married? Don't ask me why. We learn with age and experience, right? So uh, part of the challenge was is uh, we, finances were really struggling. And our cars, we had sold all of our vehicles and gotten cheaper cars so we could be debt-free. And the problem with the older cars is they don't last forever. So um, I had a, a very benevolent person in the congregation that was, um, had, was kind of like a snowbird at one point, but they had sold a place in Florida. And they said, while you're in Florida, I was visiting some family down there, they said, um, I have a vehicle for you. And I'm like, really? So I went down to Florida, and I was like, what, what is this vehicle going to be like? I had seen a picture, but I saw it in person. And basically, this person gave me a gold Cadillac. And it was like, wow. And I'm like, I've never been given anything like this in my life. And I was blown away. And I'm just like, okay, so now we, we have a nice, reliable means of transportation. And it's a nice ride, you know. So it was very amazing. So... I pop the trunk to see what's in the trunk. And, you know, usually there's junk in the trunk. Well, this person had a habit of every time they went to the store, they'd put their change in a bag in the trunk. And this change had accumulated over several years. So I looked at Lord and I was like, does this person realize they left a big wad of change in the, the trunk? So um, in Florida, they have a Publix. They're all around Florida. So we went to one of those little coin stars, you know, where you put the coins in. And so we were like, chucking these coins in and it, it came with the car 
So we end up getting about, I think it was like $300 worth of cash out of the coins in the trunk. So I'm like, okay, struggling church planner, uh, we're stepping out on faith. Now we've got a car that's been given to us, and we've got $300 to spend while we're in Florida. Talk about blessing. And um, those stories uh, inspire me today that when I'm struggling or having four kids, you're like, how are you going to pay the next bill, Timothy? You know, how are you going to feed the kids? I look back on God's provision for the vision in the past. And the same is true with your life. Whenever you don't know what to do, you can look towards Christ because he's the only one who knows what to do. If you look in this text, verses 3 through 5, what was the major problem? They had run out of wine. Now you think about that not being a big deal, right? You're like, why would this be like a big deal running out of wine? Well, this day and time, the groom and sometimes the father, it was a big responsibility to pay for the wedding and the festivities. And having two daughters, I would like to go back to the Old Testament where the, the, the man pays for it. So now it's the bride that pays for it, right? So whenever my daughters get marriage age, we're going to vote to go back to Jewish culture, right? The, the groom, well, once the boys get, we'll flip it back. We'll go back to... <laughs> my wife just asked, what about the boys? I was like, well, that time we'll, we'll go back to American culture. But so the, the groom, his responsibility was to pay for all these festivities. And part of it, in this culture, it was an honor and shame culture. So I want you to see the, the, the situation. I'm going to call out all the guys. Imagine you met the girl of your dreams, and you're married to her now if you're married. She's the girl of your dreams. And all of her family and friends and all the community, the entire community. Imagine all of Arden, all 15,000 people around three miles of here are coming to your celebration. And it's up to you to pay for the bill. And you plan for the wedding, and you're like, it's going to come through. But somewhere along the wedding, we don't know when it runs out, but it runs out. And this is an honor and a shame culture. So you could experience great shame for running out of wine. So for us, it's not a big deal. You go down to Publix, you pick up the supplies there. They didn't have like the Jerusalem grocery store where you could just drive down the road and pick it up. So there was a major problem. They're, they're out of wine. Notice how Jesus responds to her. What does he call her? Woman. Now, some of you, when you think of that, you think of negative things like, woman, make me a sandwich or something like that. But that's not the way Jesus is communicating. It's not what you're thinking. Woman here is, it's not really, it's not disrespectful, nor is it a sign of great respect. It's almost like saying, ma'am, dear ma'am. If you have the NIV, it translates it, dear woman, so that helps but here's what I sense in this. Why did Jesus call Mary woman? I think my, my, my instinct with the text from studying it is Jesus was under Mary's authority, Mary and Joseph. By the way, Joseph's nowhere to be found because many scholars think he's died at this point. But Jesus was obedient to his mother, but there came a point in his, his, his ministry where he had to step out, and now I'm no longer listening to the dictates of my mother. Now I have to obey the Father, the Heavenly Father. So it's kind of a change in the relationship. It wasn't a disrespect. It wasn't anything bad. Jesus, in my personal opinion, he was saying, I'm now, I've got to follow God's call. And that was his story all of his life. But you know how when you're under your parents' authority, you've got to obey your parents. And, but there comes to a point where you become an adult and you go out on your own. And this is Jesus' debut into his ministry. So whenever he says, woman, He's not saying anything negative. He's just he's implying that I now have to answer to another authority, to my Heavenly Father. 
Now, notice the advice that Mary gives the servants. She says, whatever he says to you, do it. And I think that's good advice for the Christian walk. If we just follow that one sentence, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. I think that's encouraging. And something about Mary is that she didn't give up. Most of us, if Jesus said, what does this have to do with me? We'd be like, all right, I'm backing away. But Mary pressed in and she learned something. And I think there's a lesson we can learn also from the servants. You notice in this miracle it said that only three groups of people knew what happened. Mary knew what happened. The disciples knew what happened, and the servants knew what happened. So I think there's a, there's a very good application in this text that sometimes only those who are serving get in on certain secrets. And I have a scripture for you. It's, um, it's in the Old Testament, and it says, God reveals certain things only to his servants, the prophets. And I think that's, that's important, that some things we can only get when we're serving. Did you guys get that in the text? The servants knew. No one else knew but the servants. So I think lesson we can learn is obedience unlocks the flow of God's favor in your life. Whenever, whatever Jesus says to do it, you do it. When you obey, it unlocks God's flow of favor. But whenever you disobey, sometimes it can shut up his favor. And something we can learn from the servants is that we just got to do what Jesus tells us to do. Faith unlocks the supernatural. Something I can learn from Mary in this text, and I hope you can see it, is that Mary, when she didn't get exactly the answer she wanted, she didn't give up. She had faith. In your outline is Matthew 17:20. I believe that's on the back of your outline, under point two. This is a beautiful verse. It says, he replied, because you have such little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move nothing will be impossible for you. So think about that. Nothing will be impossible for you. Mary had such faith that she continued to press in, and she told the servant, hey, even though Jesus answered this way, be ready, be ready for something. Number three, I believe the best is yet to come, not only because God knows what to do when you don't know what to do, but God can transform your ordinary old life into an extraordinary new life. He can transform your ordinary old life into extraordinary new life. Now, John doesn't mention anything in the Bible by chance or coincidence. It's under the inspiration of Scripture. So when he has details in the text, it's not so that it can just embellish the text. Or So like when it says in verse 6, there were set six water parts, water parts of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. There's a reason for that. He's not trying to say, you know, there were these beautiful, elegant stone vases. And they had these paintings on him and all this. It was saying, okay, here's what happened. And I want you to notice the water jars. I think there's, there's something significant. How many water jars were there? Six. And I think six is significant because throughout the Bible, six is the number of man. And they were made of what material? Stone. So six water parts made of stone. They each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. So if you average, the average one is 25 gallons. That's about 150 gallons of wine. Now, that's a lot of wine. I would dare say nobody in here has had that much wine at a party, 150 gallons, especially if you're Baptist. You, don't, you have grape juice, right? No wine at the party, right? <laughs> and also, the text would tell you that they're empty. So you've got six stone water, parts, water pots. They're empty. 
And what is the reason for? They represented the old way. It says they were used for Jewish purification. And what we find out in the Gospels and other passages that a lot of the things that were in the Old Testament law, people just went through the motions. They were simply a ceremony, but they weren't really significant to the people. They were going through the motions. So whenever someone had to offer a sacrifice to God, they would often wash up and get ready to make sure they're ritually pure. So that's what that was used for. And they were filled in the original purpose when they were filled with common water. But notice what Jesus did. If you look in the text, this is extraordinary. He had all six jars filled to the full. Now, can you imagine being one of the servants? I don't know if they had wheel carts or what, but imagine 25 gallons of wine trying to carry that in a stone pot. That's a lot of weight. And he changed the jars the way they were used. Instead of being used for the ordinary purposes of purification, he now uses these to transform into a celebration. And water, if you look at water, water is used for hydration and just it's ordinary and it's, it doesn't have a lot of flavor. Wine in biblical times was used for celebration, not for hydration. And it, it, throughout the Old Testament, wine represents life. It represents blessing. And so Jesus, by his special power, he transformed the atomic chemistry of the water. He transformed the water into wine. Now, I want you to see the servant, the faith of the servant. Can you imagine being the servant and you're giving it to the master of the, cel- the, the, the celebrations and all of a sudden you give it to him and you're, you're like, do I really serve water? When did he know that it turned into wine? Well, some of you say it may, it may have turned into red, right? red wine. What if it, was, what if it wasn't red wine? <laughs> what if it was a different color? What if it looked like water? I mean, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But this ministry, what I think is significant, it symbolizes Jesus' new covenant. So a lot, of t- a lot of pastors will look at this and say, you know, Jesus affirmed traditional marriage, man and woman. I would agree with that. But this, in verse 11 it says this was a sign that pointed people to his glory. What, what was the sign? What was the reason behind it? Jesus had already affirmed marriage because he created it. I think the symbol was I'm ushering in a new covenant. You see the old covenant with the purification you see that that was external. But what I'm doing is I'm doing something new. The old water was to wash off dirt. I'm producing wine that's going to be inside. Jesus later on gave it an illustration that you don't put new wine in old wineskins. You put new wine in new wineskins. And wine was a symbol of, of his new life and his new ministry. So I really think this miracle, if you ask why did Jesus do it at a wedding, I think it was significant that he's showing that the old way of doing things, it didn't really work according to God's plan. So Jesus had to come and bring in a new covenant. So this whole miracle of water to wine represents here's the old way and here's the new covenant. I'm doing something special. Now, a question that a lot of people would say, why did Jesus produce so much wine? I mean, 150 gallons, perhaps. It's a lot of wine. And People get in debate of whether it was grape juice, whether it was wine. We're not going to go there, but why was it so much? What was the reason? Well, in the Old Testament, I'm going to give you a passage, and it's not on your notes, but Amos 9, I'm going to read this, is verses 13 through 15. I got it on the screen. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading the grapes. In other words, there's so much abundance, you can't keep up with it. 
New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Now listen, uh, new wine will drip and flow. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I've given them, says the Lord God. So here's the idea. This is picturing the Messianic age, which will find its full fulfillment when the new Jerusalem comes down. There's new heaven, new earth. But what Jesus is doing by this abundance of wine, he's picturing, I'm in the process of ushering in a new age, a messianic age. And one day, this will be completed when Jesus comes back. There's a new heaven, a new earth. So I think there's another significance about the stone water jars. I think the stone water jars represent us before Christ. So I want you guys to get this parallel. We were all empty inside before Jesus. We felt like our hearts were like stone. We felt cold. We felt empty. We all had stubborn hearts. Ezekiel said in 36, 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and I will take away your stony, stubborn heart and give you a new heart of flesh, a responsive heart. So this was symbolic. Our human efforts always came up short. That's the number of six. Man falls short. But when we're filled with old, stale water, it doesn't really do much for us until Christ invades us and he fills us with new wine. He fills us with life in it more abundantly. And if you look in the New Testament at the very end at the Lord's Supper, which we'll be partaking of this in the upcoming weeks, uh, Jesus said that the wine was symbolic of what? His blood shed, the new covenant. So I think this, this story here is so flowing with meaning that the wine represents the shed blood. It represents a new covenant, a new way. So the best is yet to come. Because Jesus can transform your ordinary life into something extraordinary, man. Number four, Jesus blesses greatly those who faithfully follow. And the scripture I was referring to before was Amos 3, 7. It says, indeed, the sovereign Lord never does anything until, or until he reveals his plans to the prophets, to his servants, the prophets. Now, something about this is that the servants got in on something special because they were serving. And there are many people here at Arden First that you serve day in and day out. And sometimes you feel like nothing's happening. But if you'll just keep serving the master and you're serving him, he's going to turn your water into wine. He's going to do something special that you get in because you're serving him faithfully. Some miracles can only occur when we take that faithful step of serving him. And trusting him to do something amazing. And, you know, what, what's interesting, when you look at the, the MC, the Master of Ceremonies, um, one thing I never got until actually this morning is the Master of Ceremonies, he enjoyed the wine, but he didn't see the sign. He tasted the wine, but didn't see the sign. You notice that? The servants got it, the disciples got it, but the Master of Ceremonies didn't get it. There are many people today that are in church. They, they, they get a sense of God's grace and goodness. They're tasting it, but they haven't really fully embraced it. And a lot of, Billy Graham says, the greatest danger is people miss heaven by 18 inches. They have God in their head, but they've never received it in their hearts. And I don't want us to commit the same mistake that the, ma- the master of ceremonies did. He tasted the wine, but he missed the sign. Don't taste the wine and miss the sign. Know that, There's something that God is doing. 
And I don't want us to ever miss what he's, what he's doing. And you notice he, he did say one thing correctly. He said, you've saved the best until last. Did, did you realize that's God's strategy? He gives you life in it more abundantly now, but he saves the best for last. Did you know that Satan's strategy is the opposite? He gives you the best he's got, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, since we're talking about uh, alcoholic beverages, um, when you think about the Budweiser commercials, you know, they're drinking, and usually it's a guy, and he's got two attractive females next to him, and he looks at one and the, the other, and his guy, his guy friend's over there, and he says, it doesn't get any better than this. Did you know that's the truth? When you're living for the world, you're drinking the waters of this world, and there's no significance to it, it doesn't get any better. It gets worse. Satan gives you the best he's got, and then it just gets progressively worse, and he saves the worst for the end. But when you follow Jesus, he saves the best for last. So the good news is if you're having a hard time right now and you don't know what God's doing, he saves the best for last. If your health is failing and you look in the mirror and you're like, my goodness, I remember when I used to look like this, now I look like this, he saves the best for last. When it's time to pay the bills and you don't really have money in the account and you're like, God, you've got to come through, remember, it's not your best life now, it's your best life later. He saves the best for last. Look at the person next to you and say, he saves the best for last. So that's our final point. He saves the best for last. And something I want you to get about the groom. What, what's, what's really, there's so many parallels in this scripture. I don't have time. But you notice that the groom, whose mistake was it that they ran out of wine in this culture? It was the groom's, right? He should have paid for it. You notice that Jesus made the groom look good even though he didn't deserve it. The master of the ceremony said, you saved the best. for This is the best wine I've ever tasted. And the groom who completely blew it, somehow he got showered in the grace of God. And Jesus made the groom look better than he deserved. Because he was the failure, right? He ran out of wine. He didn't supply. But Jesus being the perfect bridegroom, he comes through where we fall short. His grace is there. I read a story this week that really touched me. Many of you are in the medical field. And I read a story about a missionary doctor. He had spent 40 years of his life ministering in the primitive villages of Africa. Finally, after 40 years, he had helped people medicinally, with medicine. Medicinally, he had helped people spiritually. He had poured his life. He decided that he was going to retire after 40 years. He's like, I'm ready to come back to the States. So in this day and time, he sent a telegraph to, I guess it was the missions board and anyone else that he knew saying, I'm retiring. I'll be back at this date and time. So he, he was going back via boat. And all of a sudden, as he pulls up, he sees this huge banner. It says, welcome home. And he's like, I knew the mission board would come through. I knew my, my church family would be there. And he was just so excited, and he was thinking about the memories of 40 years of serving in Africa, helping out all these people with health issues. And as he was getting ready to get off and um, get back on land, he noticed that, that they weren't celebrating him. It, it was a famous movie star that had been on the same boat, and they were welcoming home the movie star. And he was just so discouraged, and he went home, and he just started pouring out his heart to God. I spent 40 years helping these people, 
in America, obviously, he could have made a lot of money as a doctor. Now he just, I mean, he had really nothing to go back to. And he's like, at least one person, God, couldn't you send someone from the mission board? At least one person pouring out his heart. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him in that, that moment and said, you're not home yet. When you get home, I will welcome you warmly. And just that still small voice helped him to realize the best is yet to come. Amen. So uh, a few parallels, and I'll be brief in this, but in a lot of, in every Jewish wedding, there's different discrepancies with villages and everything, but this is how a lot of Jewish weddings went. I thought this was pretty incredible. There was a marriage covenant, and in a lot of cases, the father paid for the bride price, okay? Then there was a bridal chamber where the son would go back to his father's house and prepare this bridal chamber, and that's where they would live together. And then the bride would um, basically, they would come and get the bride, the son would, and in some cases it was when the father of the son determined the time to go and get her. You guys see where I'm going with this, right? Um, We are the bride of Christ. You may not realize it, but you are, if you're in Christ, you're a bride. So John 2 is so applicable to you as the church. Jesus as the son, as the bridegroom, the father had to pay the price by sending him to die for your sins. He paid the price so that we could be married to Jesus spiritually. And you notice that Jesus, when he left, he said, I'm going away to do what? To prepare a place for you? And something in studying this text that really enlightened me to it is that's part of the Jewish culture. The bridegroom would go away to prepare a place in the father's home. So that's what Jesus is doing right now for his bride. He's preparing a place. Now, it's been almost 2,000 years. Can you imagine in this day and time it would take about a year for the bridegroom to get things ready for his bride and his new family? It would take a year. It's been about 2,000 years. I wonder what kind of place Jesus is preparing for you and for me. And in a day when the Father announces, you remember when Jesus was on earth, he said the Father knows the time when, this, when the second coming is going to be. And whenever he was ready, he would announce it's time. And in many accounts, they would come and there would be a great shout in the village when the bridegroom was coming. And that would alert the bride, my, my future husband-to-be is coming. There would be a big shout. And you see that in scriptures about the shout of the archangel and getting things ready. So when it's the time for the father to get us home, there will be a shout and a trumpet sound. And all of a sudden, the bride of Christ, we will be called home where we shall forever be with our bridegroom. Amen. So no matter what you're going through now, Know this, the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this sign in John 2. And the sign is a miracle with the message. And I think the message you've spoken loud and clear is that the wine is symbolic of the sacrifice of Jesus, a new covenant, a new way. And God, I'm wondering if there's anyone here that they're still living in the days of water. They're still living in the days where life is stale and boring. And spiritually speaking, you're saying, I want to breathe new life into you. I want to turn your water into wine. If there's anyone here that hasn't prayed to receive Jesus, right now where you're sitting, the Bible says if you will invite Jesus into your life, if you will ask for forgiveness, he will step out of heaven and into your heart, and he will make you a new person. Just right now where you're at, in your own words, just pray, Jesus... I believe that you're God and that you came to die on the cross for me. That you were buried and you rose again. 
And I realize I'm still in the old, stale, natural life. And God, I want you to turn my ordinary into extraordinary. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me with your blood and make me a brand new person. Brandon, if you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family of God. And God, for the rest of us, as we are struggling, as right now our health is failing us, some of us are finances, some of us family stresses, some people may be going through divorce, whatever it is, help us to know that the best is not now, the best is yet to come. God, turn our ordinary into extraordinary. Turn our water into wine. Do something inside of us that only you can do, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we give you glory. And God, until you come again, your bride faithfully awaits your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.